Man, wasn't that beautiful, that worship? And we're getting to continue in worship through the Word. If you want to go ahead and open to Isaiah chapter 9. Brandon, what was the name of that second song? Yeah, Joy to the World. I never realized how much Bible was in that song. I was sitting there uh, reading the words like, you got to be kidding me. Whoever put that together, well done. I mean, I know it's old, but like I was sitting there reading it going, oh my goodness. Well, so today we're starting our Christmas series called The, the uh, Glorious, The Glorious King. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to celebrate the glorious one. We're here to celebrate the glorious king. So we're going to be in Isaiah 9. And what I love about Isaiah 9 is sometimes we think this, this Jesus thing is just a New Testament thing. No, he was prophesied. The king was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at one of these prophecies by Isaiah this morning. So just a little bit of context, because this, this passage in Isaiah is one of the most it's one of the, those passages that gets taken out of context a lot because we like to just dive right into the Christmas stuff. And um, that's good, but a context is going to bring a little clarity for us. So we're going to do that, but before we do, let's pray and let's ask God that he would pour his blessing out on us as we read his word. God, I am so excited to jump in the word this morning. God, I'm excited to, to, to hear what you have to say to us. God, and I'm, I'm excited to see how your spirit's going to work in our hearts and how we're going to respond. Lord, I, I pray that you would use this people to do a great work for your kingdom. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there's going to be a lot of background in this one this morning, okay? So Israel, remember, you had the 12 tribes. They eventually became a, a nation in the Old Testament. The 12 tribes and um, where, where Isaiah is talking, there had just been two bad kings in a row. And honestly, the stuff that he's telling, the, what, he, what he's coming to tell them isn't a whole lot of good news in this, in this passage. But here, here he's giving hope and he's showing hope on the horizon. And that there's going to be, remember they had the two bad kings, but there's going to come a good king. And this king, he's given the name Emmanuel. And I know that's one of those things we say a lot at Christmas. That means God with us. So this king is going to be God in the flesh. This, this woman, she's going she's to be a virgin and she's going to conceive and she's going to bring to us Emmanuel, God with us. And this king, he's going to be a good king. And this king's going to make all things right. And that's, that's, that's the prophecy that we're picking up here in, in Isaiah. So Israel, they waited for 700 years for this prophecy to come true. And when Jesus finally came, when God with us finally got here, honestly, they missed it because their vision of who the king would be was far too small. The people, they wanted a powerful king that looked like the, the kingdoms and, and, and empires around the world. They wanted life that looked comfortable and familiar. They missed the more extraordinary life for the sake of comfort because what they were looking for all along was just, it was too small. And 
I think that's a word warning for Christians this morning. I think many of us, we like to lean into comfort as that's what the Christian life looks like. But our view for our life, for what God can do through us, is just far too small. These, these, these people, they wanted to build their own kingdoms like the Pharisees. What the Pharisees wanted, they wanted kingdoms of personal influence. They wanted to build their kingdoms of wealth. They wanted to build kingdoms of comfort. They wanted kingdoms of, of power and national pride. And it's all because their vision was too small. They, live, they, they, they missed out on the greater thing that Christ had to offer because they were focused on what they could see and touch. They missed out on the extraordinary life because of what they expected out of Christ was too, too small. Um, we all know when something's missing, there could be better, right? We've all tasted the food and known. You know, um, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, when Ellie was two, she... She was trying to, she, she was getting in that stage where bedtime was a battle. And she was trying to outsmart us because obviously her mother and I are morons. So she wouldn't eat dinner um, so that she at bedtime could say, I'm hungry. So I fixed that real quick. I gave her a little cup with, you know, one of those spill-proof lids on it of uh, cereal with no, with no sugar on it because we're those boring people. Actually, I just like to douse it in honey. But she, I gave her some sugarless cereal with no milk. So a couple days later, I um, 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 say, hey, baby, what do you want for breakfast? And she always wanted two pieces of toast with butter. That's, that's all she wanted. But we didn't have that. And I was like, oh, we don't have any toast. Would you like cereal? And she said, yeah, because, you know, she's thinking like cinnamon toast crunch, but all of a sudden she had PTSD and, you know, how the, that little diaper waddle. She started waddling over to, the, uh, to where her bowls were to beat me there, and she says, Dad, cereal with milk. <laughs> she, she knew what was better, and she didn't want to go back. Once you've tasted and seen that the Lord's plan is better, you're not going to want to go back. If and when you start chasing those things again, like career and money and relationships, um, trying to find worth in what you look like, whatever it is, when you start tasting life, you're just going to find it bland because it's not what it should be. It's so much less than what Christ has prepared for you. God has a plan for each one of our lives. And God has a calling on your life. And what he has is good. He's got a plan of excitement, of, of joy and contentment and fruitfulness. And one of my passions is to see believers step into that calling, step into the more of life. We, we put more in, in other categories, but more is walking in faithfulness with Jesus. So here's, here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. You're going to see it on the screen. Your life is too short to live for a vision that's too small. Don't waste your life. Live for what's greater. Christ came for the purpose of building his kingdom here on earth and throughout eternity. 
And that's what we are to live for the sole purpose of. And when we live for the kingdom, what does Jesus tell us in the, in the Beatitudes? All these other things will be added to us. So let's read our text. It says in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. And here's the stamp. This is how you know it's going to take place. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So now let's, let's step back into some of the background because background's going to drive a lot of, um, and when, when we're talking about the Bible, a lot of times we say context is king. And especially for this passage this morning, context, context drives a lot of the meaning of what's here and uh, what we have here. So at this point we're, with what's going on, Israel had been split into two kingdoms. There had been a civil war. And just to, to help you think about it, the northern kingdom, they're the bad guys. That's, so 10 tribes went north. They were so evil, eventually God obliterated them. That's how bad they were. And then you had the two southern tribes. They were called Judah. And now it's confusing because in the Old Testament, they interchange Israel with Judah. But, but the southern tribe is of the actual lineage of David. It's, it's the one who God had covenanted with that he would never allow David's throne to, 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 to go away, that it would reign forevermore. And we know that, that that forevermore king is in the person of Christ. So northern king, bad guys. Southern king, Mm, goodish, badish. So that's, that's, that's how we can think about it. And um, so we are in the southern kingdom in Isaiah. That's who Isaiah is talking to. And it opens up with King Uzziah in the book of Isaiah. He was a good king. This was a king that loved God. Um, but he passed away in chapter six. And chapter six is one of everybody's favorite passages, right? We see the throne room of God. Isaiah, he's brought up there and you have, the, you have the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the thresholds of the temple are shaking. And that's where he's like, oh, I'm about to die. I should not be here. And the angel goes and puts the coal on his lips and God, God commissions him and he has the famous statement, here I am, send me, I'll go. That, that, that's, that's what's coming up now. He's commissioning him to go speak to what will be wicked kings. So the next king, Uzziah, good. Jotham, mediocre at best. Like he does nothing really special in his life. That's what people want to, what you want people to say about you when you're dead, right? Eh, mediocre at best. Um, but what he did do notably was he started the sin cycle in the nation of Israel. And his son that came after him, his name was Ahaz. And Ahaz was a wicked king. So Ahaz, he doesn't trust God. He doesn't listen to the prophet. And the scene that we're coming into right now in, in um, Isaiah chapter 9, remember the bad northern king, 
They've, they've teamed up with a different country named Syria, not Assyria, Syria, because we're about to talk about Assyria in a second. It all matters. Just, just track with me. So uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, and um, Syria, they're about to come take Jerusalem. They're about to come overthrow the southern kingdom. And God pleads in chapter 7 um, to, to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah to trust in God as his protection, to trust in God as his strength. God wanted Ahaz, God wanted Ahaz to trust God as his strength. Ahaz doesn't trust God. Instead, what he does is he trusts in the, the warriors of the Assyrians. Um, you've seen the, the 300. These are the, the, this, this Persian army that was going to sweep the world. They were wealthy. They were strong. They were powerful. And that's what he trusted. And God wanted Ahaz to trust his might, his power. He wanted to be Ahaz's warrior. So Ahaz trusts Trust in the, he trusts them, they make a covenant together. God wanted Ahaz to trust the covenant that he's already made with Israel. And every trust that he puts in the Assyrians were all things that God wanted him to trust him for. And I just see this in my life over and over and over, that the, the character Ahaz just sheds light all over me, right? So, Ahaz, he, so what he does is he takes the gold out of the temple of God to go and, and pay for this protection. His vision of what God could do, too small. And he so desperately wanted the comfort that it looked like the Assyrians had that he wanted to worship the same gods of the Assyrians. So, Ahaz, he even goes as far to take some of that gold out of the temple and use it to worship Moloch, the god of the Assyrians. And he even has child sacrifice. Ahaz, he trusted in government and gold over God. He gave up God's gold to pay for his protection. He trusted in a foreign government for his protection. And ultimately, that government that he was hoping in to bring peace, they enslaved Ahaz. The northern kingdom and the Syria, they didn't even have a chance. They were enslaved by the Assyrians. His vision was too small. And here, we're almost 3,000 years later, and I see believers forfeiting the life that God has to offer for the hope of what government and gold can bring. Do you find yourself putting your, your trust in, in politicians, in the government, for things that only God can provide? In desperation of the moment when money is tight, do you find yourself trusting in gold? Instead of giving that tithe to God that he's designated to himself from your bank account, do you take and use that money for something else? And then we, we look up Weeks and months later, and we're surprised that we don't have God's blessing on our life. 
It's because we're operating out of fear and not out of faith. Ahaz desired comfort over obedience. Listen to me. God is more concerned about our obedience than he ever will be with our comfort. Everyone wants the mercies of God, but far, far few people, people want the God of mercies. What do I mean by that? Ahaz, he wanted the things, but he did not want the God of the things. When you step away from comfort into trust, that's what it means to walk in faith. Will you find the more in life that you've already always been searching for? But to do that, you got to understand it comes with a price and it comes with a call. And that price and that call is to step out of comfort. And that's the background of this passage. A king that trusted in everything else but God that led to his own destruction and the ruin of his people. And I think, again, that's a good word of warning to us as the people of God, right? Amen? So now let's look back at verses 6 and 7. So we see the type of son in verse 6 that would be given. And every wrong hope that was placed, every wrong hope that was placed in the world around Uzziah was supplied in the person of Jesus. And every wrong hope that we put around us is supplied in the person of Jesus. That, that's what we get in Christ. Ahaz, he sought the counsel and the help from the, the Assyrians, but what does our text tell us? That this king is going to be a wise counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. And Jesus He's a counselor that he speaks to our souls and he knows every insecurity that you have. He's going to impress you, but he's not going to break you because he's a kind and com compassionate shepherd. Listen to the counsel he gives and the prompting of the Spirit and you're going to find that life of more. The next thing the text shows is that Jesus is mighty God. That's Jesus is, when he was born, the God of the universe put on human flesh and laid in a manger. Jesus, in his person, had all the power of God the Father, all the might of God the Father. He is one in essence, but separate in persons. This is what we talk about when we're talking about this, this Trinity thing. He was mighty enough to, to satisfy all the needs of the people. And we also see in the text that it, it tells us that he's a great warrior. And this warrior had more power to accomplish anything that they needed than any government or any person, or any warrior could do. And that first Christmas, understand this, that first Christmas was God's divine assault 
against Satan and the dominion of darkness and the realm of sin because that baby was God in the flesh and he came to fight the battle that we could not fight, to win the war that we could not win. The king who would come is also shown here to be the eternal father and the prince of peace. Again, that's showing that he is both one with the father, but he has his own role as the prince. Verse seven says this, that this kingdom, it will have no, no end. So how does this mighty warrior, this prince of peace, bring about this, this, this kingdom that will have no end? How does he, how's he gonna, how's he gonna bring about this, about this ultimate peace? And this is why the Jews missed it. They wanted Jesus to come in and overthrow the Roman government. That looked like salvation to them. And they were enraged when he didn't show up riding, he didn't come in riding a white horse with an army behind him. He came in on a, in humility and meekness on a donkey. That's why they missed it. Because their vision of how God would bring about this eternal kingdom, this powerful kingdom through this mighty warrior, through this Messiah, it wasn't what they expected. Because what they expected was too small. I mean, you even see it with his disciples, right? Remember Peter? He rebukes Jesus for, for telling the disciples that he was going to die to bring about the kingdom. Peter missed it. Why? Because his vision was too small. But God's vision was bigger, and his vision is to build an eternal kingdom. And his vision is to do that through us still. Time after time, we miss out because our vision is too small of what God can do through us to build his eternal kingdom. This warrior, this warrior and prince of peace of heaven won his kingdom, and he won his subjects, not by the sword, but by the cross. He suffered and he died in our place. He was mighty enough to pay the debt we couldn't pay. No one could pay the debt. That's why Jesus came both as God, but he also was born as man, and he paid the debt that we could not pay with the divine blood of God. Ephesians 2, 14, you'll see this on the screen, 14 and 16, for he, this is Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken us down, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So through his body on the cross, there was hostility between us and God because of our sin. But Jesus broke that down. There's now no more hostility. And then Romans 8, 1 tells us this. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because of the cross, there is no hostility. There is no condemnation for those who believe. Look at the screen. I want, I want you to get this. I want this to be internalized in your heart. That the full cup of God's wrath that was to be poured out on me and you, this mighty warrior, Christ, he drank 
the, the bowl of God's wrath down to the last drop, there is none left. There is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no wrath left for those who believe. And that's how mighty this warrior king is. He fought the battle that we could not win on our behalf. And he, he accomplished peace between us and God. But one day this warrior king, he's coming again. This time he's not coming to bring peace by the cross. But Revelation 19 shows us he's coming on a white horse this time, not on a donkey. And he will bring peace with the sword. The picture is him riding in with a sword coming from his mouth to strike down the nations. He will gather Satan and his beast and his false prophet and he will throw them into hell and throw away the keys. He will ultimately come and bring peace by the sword. You can choose to come through the cross or it tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and under the heavens and in earth and he will raise both the living and the dead and with one voice, all people will cry that he's king of kings and lord of lords. And then they will face his great white throne. And how do we know that our God will do this? Verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's God's passion. This is God's passion project. Zeal, that's what it means. It means passion. It's God's passion to bring about God's kingdom. God is so passionate about his glory. He's so passionate about his kingdom that God, he gave up himself. He gave up the one who he loves the most, his son. John 3, 16, we all know it, right? But God so loved the world that he gave up his only begotten son that whoever would believe would have eternal life. God gave up part of his eternal trinity to be punished on our behalf for crimes that he didn't commit. He is zealous for his kingdom. And because he's zealous for it, it will come to pass. Nothing can thwart the will of God. So church, what do we do with this? This is what I want you to hear this morning. God has invited us to come alongside of him. God, God has brought us into this world. He has saved us. He's redeemed us out of darkness so that we would be a part of building his kingdom here on earth. The Great Commission, Matthew 8, uh, 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. See the, see the moment real quick. Jesus, he's, he's died on the cross. He's been risen from the grave. Now he's about to ascend on a cloud into heaven. And this is what he tells his people last. And this should be the first things that we do. So he's saying it on, as God, all authority. I've got it all. I've got the authority of the Father. Go make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How do you know that you're 
you're passionate about what God's passionate about. How do you know that you're walking in the will of God? You know that you're walking in God's will if you're passionate about what he's passionate about. And what is he passionate about? Bringing about his kingdom. So what's the proof? What's the proof that you're passionate about what God's passionate about? Are you making disciples? Discipleship is how God will bring this kingdom to pass. We participate in building the kingdom of God by becoming a people. This is my prayer for us. This is my prayer for you guys as I've been coming here is that we would become disciple-making disciples. That's the prayer. We try to make it all these things that it's not, all these projects. The model that God has for us to build his kingdom is disciple-making disciples. That's you specifically pouring your life into someone else. And I'm gonna give you a framework some point in the new year on how you can practically do this. But uh, a, real, a real practical way is giving somebody just an invite to church. That's, that's, that's one practical way for you to step into it. Matt, Matt Carter, um, he's, a, he's a pastor. He gave this illustration at the Southern Baptist Convention a few years ago, and it just struck my heart. He said, you know, Imagine you're, you're standing in heaven. Just picture this in your mind real quick. Just hear me out. And you're around millions and millions and millions of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every generation. And with one voice, you are singing to the majesty of our God. You, see, you, you can see Jesus enthroned. And you stop and you look around, you, you, you start looking at faces and you realize you've done nothing to add to that moment. You've not personally invested in any person. Wouldn't that be a travesty? God has put you in this world to build his kingdom. To have that better life that I told you that God's designed for you, you have to have a, a vision bigger than this moment, bigger than comfort, bigger than your bank account, bigger than your kids' sports dreams. You have to have eyes that sees everyone as eternal beings. I mean, look around this room. Everybody in here is eternal. But life kind of happens. And we kind of get busy. And we get lulled by Satan into believing we're going to be here for a long time. And so will my daughter and so will my father and so will my friend. We start thinking we're eternal too. We, we start thinking that, that, that this life is long. But here's the reality. Everybody in this room, they have an eternal destiny. Heaven or hell. Glory or ruin. And our time is all fading very quickly. You know, we're in the Bible Belt. And what we do instead is we look around the room 
and we just assume everybody's believers. We go to work, and they said God at some point. You know, they're a believer too. We, we assume salvation of everyone. But what does the Bible teach us that our default position on humanity should be? Fallen, wicked, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, dead in trespasses and sin. The, 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 the assumption isn't salvation. And we allow so many people to slip into hell as the church because we don't step out of our comfort and share Christ with them. We just assume salvation of them all. And it's heartbreaking. And I do it too. And it's like, who really wants to walk into an awkward situation? Right? So here's, here's the question. What are you going to do about it instead of having the big-headed, bearded guy yell at you? What are you going to do about it? Well, in, in the future, I, my prayer is that everybody in the room would be a disciple-making disciple who is confident and comfortable sharing their faith. I don't know where we're at, and I don't know if we're there yet, but I do know a small thing is on that tree out there in the foyer and at the welcome desk, there are little ornaments. And it does take courage to put one of those things in somebody's hand and to invite them to, to the nativity or to the Christmas service. Because here's the deal. They're going to hear the gospel here. They're going to hear the gospel out there. It, it takes courage. And just imagine with me, you invite, maybe when the, the, the youth invite one of their friends and their, their parents come, and, and dad gets saved. And dad starts bringing his kids to church every week, and his kids get saved. And they grow up, and his kids have kids. And those kids raise their children to walk in obedience. And generations of people, because of that small act, walk in faithfulness with Christ. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to take you taking that little step of faith, getting out of that comfort zone. But it can have eternal ramifications The things that we're asking, they, 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 they create, you know, a tug in your heart. Like, I, I'm the pastor. I think I told you all this last week. If not, my bad. But, like, I was at this, I, was at, I, I invited somebody the other day, um, and, like, it's easy for me. Like, what do you do? Well, I'm the pastor of the church. Come and visit. But, like, uh, I was sitting there, and I was talking to him, and it just got awkward for a second, and I almost didn't, because it still takes you stepping out of comfort to have that conversation. So don't feel like, oh, he's the pastor, it's easy. No, it's not. It, it takes a, a measure of just faith to speak to people. But I want you to know that God's work on earth is not done, but we only have a very, very, very short window to contribute. Life is a vapor, it's here today, gone tomorrow. And everything has a season. And our season, your season for reaching the world, I want you to understand it's very limited. But are you ready to partner with the king to bring about his mission of peace? Now, you might say to me, God would never use me. God could never use me. God can't use me. And I'm sorry, but I have to rebuke you. How short do you think the arm of the Lord is? 
He is from everlasting to everlasting. He's almighty God. And for you to believe that he can't use you, it's a heresy, it's blasphemy, it's a travesty because us believing that, us putting that on God is making God a liar because God says he will use us. But only that, we're not being, we're not being the witness in this place that he's called us to be. He's chosen you for the work of his kingdom. And I'm just begging you, let's go on this journey together. And let's walk into this life of excitement. Choose the life of service. Choose a life that's better. Maybe your vision of, for what God can do through Oak Grove is too small. In the new year, what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna invite you to enter into a season of prayer and fasting with me. And what we're gonna do, we're gonna ask the Lord for a God-sized dream that if he doesn't show up and do it, that it won't get done. Because a lot of times what we do is we, we make manageable size things that we can do on our own and in our own power. And those things just are not very impressive. Or churches are so often just so risk averse that we never take a chance on anything. And then we never end up doing anything. God has called us to do things. I, I pray that this is an unlikely place and an unlikely people to, and I'm praying that God would do an unlikely work through us, that we would be a light shining in China Spring in Waco and around the world. Ephesians 2, I want, uh, Ephesians 3.20, I, I, I want this to be our mantra as we enter into this season of fasting and prayer to see what God's gonna do through us. It says this, I think it's gonna come up on the screen. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Not just more than you ask, but more than you could imagine. Some translations say think. According to his power, where is his, where is his power at work? Where is his power at work, church? Not in them. He's not working externally to us. His power is at work in us to accomplish more than we could think or imagine or ever ask for. God not only has the power to do what we ask, he can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. So let's ask big things. How about that? Have you ever been challenged to pray ambitious things, to ask ambitious things of the Lord, of how he would grow his kingdom through you? I'm asking that God would do big things through Oak Grove. I'm, I'm praying for a church of prayer and of disciple-making, that we would spark a disciple-making movement. I'm praying that, that God would use Oak Grove to send his gospel around the world. And I'm expecting him to do these things and greater things than I'm asking for. I'm praying that God would call you I'm praying that God would call your kids. I'm praying that God would call my child to the mission field. We always want God to call somebody else's kid. I'm praying he would call our children to the field. I'm praying that God would raise some of you up to go and be church planners. I'm praying big things for our church. I'm praying that many of you would go on your first short-term mission trip ever. I'm praying that, that I get to go with some of you around the world making disciples and baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? Can, can you wrap your mind around Oak Grove doing those things? Not, not contributing for somebody else to do it, but we go do the work. It's possible we can do it.
I'm praying that God would call you to cross the road and to talk to your neighbor. I'm praying that we wouldn't just make disciples of the nations, but we'd make disciples of our neighbors. It's a lot easier to go somewhere else and talk. I'm praying that, that you would be missional and maybe you would start a community group in your home because here's the reality. Someone is much more likely to come to your home and, and to come to a Bible study with you and some of your friends than they're likely to walk through these doors. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to start a missional community in your neighborhood where you go and you knock on those people's doors and you say, hey, me and some of my friends are gonna meet at my house on Tuesday at three. What's he calling you to do? I'm praying that God would call you during family at Christmas to talk to that aunt or uncle that's always scared you because they're, they're, they're super proud of being an atheist. Is their atheism stronger than the power of the Lord? No. I'm praying that before, for every one of us in this room, before the breath leaves your body, you would know the joy of leading someone to Christ. I'm praying that each one of us would become a disciple maker and a group multiplier. Those are big prayers, church. You want to go on that journey with me? That's why I came here, because I believe we are ready to go. But it's going to take us stepping out in faith. It's going to take us doing things. I want to see us become soul winners, where we live, where we work, and where we play. I'm praying that God would show his might, that he would show his power through this little church in Central Texas. Can I get an amen? amen? So I want to see God flex, and I want to see him flex here. I want to see him flex through us. I want to see him show his power. Why? Because of Ephesians 3.20. And what's crazy is my vision for God is too small of what he can do through us. Let's read Ephesians 3.20 again together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine according to the power that is at work in us. Let's pray and let's believe according to his word. Will you settle for less? Israel missed out on the better life of worship because their vision was too small. They missed out on the, the, the king coming that Christmas because they were looking for something else. Too many Christians, as we wait for the next coming of Christ, we're going to miss out on the better life too because we're, we're stuck just looking at what we can see and touch around us. Choose the life of better. Choose the life of faith. So this is... This is what I'm going to ask you to do. The band's going to come up and they're going to give us a song uh, to respond to. But some of you, you don't know Christ, but you heard the gospel. And you're like, I want to, I want to, I want to accept Jesus. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. I'm going to be standing right here. I want to talk to you. But maybe for many of us, I know for me, it's been the case. I had to repent this week because my, my vision of what God could do was too small. Of what God could do through me, what God could do through us. Maybe, maybe you need to spend this time repenting. 
and the altar's open, come up and ask the Lord, what is a God-sized dream that he could do through you, that he could do through us, that it will only be accomplished if he shows up and does it? Because we only have one shot, church. Life is short. If you will, stand with me and we're gonna pray.